The San Francisco Dance Film Festival presents Dancing Through the Lens, a bi-monthly podcast featuring guests from our dance and filmmaking communities who share their interests, insights, and methods of creation and connection. I'm Claire Schweitzer. Bella Lewitsky was a modern dance pioneer and an outspoken, politically active champion of artistic freedom. The theatrical premiere of the documentary Bella about Lewitsky's life, work, and activism will take place at the San Francisco Dance Film Festival this fall, with director Bridget Murnane in attendance. I had the opportunity to speak with Bridget about her close connection with Bella throughout her life, as well as the questions she hopes the audience will ask themselves when they see the film. So Bridget Murnane, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Of course. Well, Bella is a fantastic documentary, and I can't wait for our audiences to see it in a cinematic setting. But can you actually start by giving a short description of who Bella Lewitsky was for those who might not be familiar with her work? Oh, let's see. Bella Lewitsky was a modern dancer, choreographer, artist educator and arts advocate. And she worked very early on starting in 1935 with Lester Horton in Los Angeles. And she was the person that he really created the Horton technique on. Although if you ask Bella, she always said there was no such thing that he believed that technique evolved and it should never be codified. She started out working with him and she worked with him until um, 1950 when she was blacklisted and one was unable to work. But she formed her own company in 1966 in Los Angeles. And um, she had the company for 30 years. And uh, it was a very successful company that toured internationally. Bella also was the director of the dance uh, section of the Olympic Arts Festival in 1984. She was the one that brought Pina Bausch to the US for the first time. Many people don't realize that. Um, And then in 1990, she famously turned down an NEA grant because she refused to sign the obscenity oath, which part of the grant stated that you would not make obscene art. And she saw that as pure censorship and she refused to sign it and she sued the NEA and eventually won. But as a result of that, it really put her company in financial straits. And the company was just able to exist for a few more years after that. And she ended the company in 1997. um, And she passed away in 2004. I'm interested in how you first became of Bella Lewitsky and her work. And what inspired you to actually continue to deepen the research and develop the documentary? I met Bella through my teacher in Boston. If you can't tell, I'm originally from Boston. And my teacher was Susan Rose. And um, she was a student of Bella's at CalArts. I forgot to mention that Bella was the founding dean of dance at CalArts. The company came to Boston in 1978. And, you know, I met everybody. And then I did a workshop in Buffalo with her um, that following year. And then I did a couple of Idlewilds, which is where she would teach in the summer. Um, And then I actually moved to L.A. in 1982. I got a scholarship to UCLA dance to get a master's because I thought, oh, you know, I could teach dance in colleges. 
So when I moved to LA in 82, the only people I knew were Bella and her husband, Newell and the company. So over the years, I, you know, I studied with Bella, I continued to work with her. And then I stopped dancing when I was around three, six, three, seven, but I always stayed in touch with her and we became very good friends. Bella really was a role model for me. Anybody who's ever took with, you know, studied with her, worked with her, met her on any level would be blown away because she had such a presence. And, you know, she really stood up for what she believed was right. And she never backed down. And I think, you know, she suffered in a lot of ways because of that. So I felt that she had a very important story to tell, especially now in our present political sphere. Also, she chose to stay in Los Angeles, which is a big reason why, you know, she didn't become more well-known than she did because she didn't move to New York like everybody else did. And she was very committed to developing art and culture in Los Angeles on every level. She became a political guide for people. She became a huge advocate for the arts in Los Angeles. She testified before Congress when the whole NEA thing was going on. I mean, she really had quite a presence in a number of worlds. So I just thought, you know, if I don't do it, it's not gonna happen. I feel like, cause you know, I was not in the company so in a way it was really good because I had a different, I had a little bit more of an outsider point of view, although I was inside in many ways, but I thought that, you know, what I knew, how I knew it, how I knew her and her husband, Newell, was important for people to know about. Yeah. And the documentary really showcases that presence in so many ways. And you can even see it in the moments where she's dancing in some of the old archival material. The documentary makes excellent use of quite a bit of archival material. And if you ever um, have had to work with archival material, both in terms of its materiality and in terms of the permissions attached to it, it can be very challenging. So I'm very interested in where you source the material from and were there any particular surprises that you found or challenges that emerged? I, I had surprises every day for like four years. <laughs> You know, originally we got a lot of the material originally from her archive at USC um, in special collections. There's the Lewitsky dance archive. And um, we were fortunate and because she had a company, they would record like if she was interviewed or she was on the news or, you know, they they would make recordings. Well, of course they'd make them on, you know, use VHS tapes. So that's what we started out with, just like as a guide, you know, for what, what it was that we were looking for and what was important. And then eventually, um, a year ago, June, I hired um, an archival producer, Hillary Dan. And a month later, an associate archival producer, Justine Pierce. And they were, I mean, they were just amazing in getting the material that we needed. Because, you know, you'll do a cut and it will sort of have stuff in it, but you're going to have to replace it. Um, you're going to have to find out where to get it. You're going to have to find out how much it is. You're going to, you know, you have to go through the whole thing. So when you work with archival producers, they know everything. 
In mm. fact, Hillary had worked for CBS News, which was really good. Mm. Um, so they have a lot of experience in, in getting a hold of stuff. But it was really <laughs> the three of us working constantly. Because we're here in LA, it was really good because we have a lot available to us in terms of facilities and you know post places and transfer places, digitizing places. So I could get some really good prices for, for some of the things. But it was also great because I started film school um, in the 80s. I mean, I went to UCLA originally for dance and I finished my MA in dance and then went into the film school and did an MFA. Yeah. So when we were going through stuff, it was really good because I knew about the formats, you know, and I right. knew what what needed to be digitized and what didn't need to be digitized and, you know, all of that. But it was an incredible journey to be able to get all of the archival material that we did. Bella actually makes an observation in the documentary regarding the marginalization of West Coast artists by both the New York dance and the New York critical establishment. Now, I know you've been a bi-coastal artist, but a lot of your work has been in the LA area. And I'm curious in how this challenge has manifested in within your own dance film practice and have you noticed any change in this mentality with the availability of digital media well I think for I think for dance film or cine dance it's different than dance itself with dance itself it's still all about New York I was just there um the beginning of May um Los Angeles Dance Project did a reconstruction of one of Bella's pieces at their season at the Joyce so I you know I hadn't been for a long time and people were coming up to me and because they knew I had made the film. And one person said, oh, yes, I knew Bella. She never thought she got what she deserved. And I was like, OK, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I don't think that's true, but OK. Um, so, you know, for world, the world of dance, I mean, it's definitely expanded because I, I danced in New York in like 1976 and like that was it. <laughs> But for dance film, it's a different thing. I mean, dance film, cine dance is is, is international. And um, in fact, for many years, Europe was really leading the way in terms of a lot of it in Canada. And, you know, so I would not say that New York is in any way a center for dance film. But still, I mean, as someone who's been based in the Bay Area, sometimes it's it feels like you're going uphill to not even emphasize like this is work is worth seeing, but like this work is here. This is work that's happening. Right. Because right. And I think, yeah. And I think that that's, you know, just like stuff in general, there's so much media out there. It takes mm -hmm. a lot to get somebody to watch something and people don't think it, it is difficult, but it really is. And um, I don't think we've built many platforms in this country for dance film. Um mm -hmm. You know, I think the distribution network, um, the whole thing is not that well put together. So, and, and I think it's a lot of times people align it with experimental work. Right, right. You know? Yeah. And the minute you say experimental, like people are gone. I mean, I thought, yeah, I found that a little tough because a lot of, uh, at least to me, it seems like whatever dance film lineage tends to follow one of two branches. Usually it's either sort of the more commercial movie musical types, or it's like Amaya Darren and the lineage that uh, emerged from there, which was very much um, very conceptual and like 
very choreographic, which you know then leads to a lot of questions like, is something choreographic inherently dance? Is something that's dance inherently choreographic? Where do, exactly do you draw that line? At least the last few years, the consolidation of dance film has gotten better, especially with the pandemic and with more people making more work that they're realizing, okay, where do we see this? Where do we put this? Where's a place that we can access this and it's not so fragmented? But I will say, I mean, I will say, I, I think from the work I've seen, my big issue with a lot of the makers is that people really need to go back and look at what's been done before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've written articles and all kinds of stuff about, you know, watching Maya Darren, watching Shirley Clark, you know, um, what, you know, really knowing the history of the whole thing and, and looking at the work that what's been done, because oftentimes I, I find that the work looks like people are not educated about it. Right. Right. You know, and, and the reality of it is the minute you shoot it, it's it's film or video or digital. It's not dance anymore. Exactly. Exactly. That's so you really have to know, you know, the the mechanisms that you're working with in media, which, you know, some are similar to dance, but there's a lot that's very different by looking for me, by looking at sort of the older work, which I think is really good and really good to look at that for me generates really great ideas. Absolutely. And there's still, even then, there's still so much work that is either buried in archives or completely lost to history because people were taping over shows to reuse tapes. You know, we had to contact um, KCET, which is our, you know, one of our PBS stations down here about Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Agnes DeMille special conversations about the dance. They couldn't find a copy. They didn't know anything about it. And finally, we got the permissions from them, but, you know, they didn't have any actual media to give us. Oh, my gosh. We, we had to get it. One of those surprises when you start to look for who owns this stuff and where is it and what happened to it. I mean, and believe me, Bella reused tapes over and over again. I mean, we have three quarter inch tapes. Like, I don't know how many times she recorded over these things. It was ridiculous, you know. Oh, my gosh. But, and also all of the, you know, we had to look for a lot of old news shows, you know, like news from the 80s in Los Angeles or, and a lot of the stations are gone and then somebody else has taken them over and nobody could actually find the material. I mean, it was a lot of stuff is just gone. We dealt with, I mean, a lot of granddaughters and grandsons, you know, of photographers or, you know, other people. Yeah, it's uh, it's a web. It is. So I really appreciate. um, Well, first of all, I appreciate the framing of the documentary. Use or using the um, Bella's stance against the NAA as a way to frame both the beginning and sort of the ending of the documentary. And I also appreciate that the documentary really depicts a nuanced viewpoint of Bella's stance against the NAA's obscenity pledge, in that it really does show how grounded she was in her ethical stance, but also the repercussions of what that decision did to her company, to the dancers, and to their livelihood, really. Now, what conversations did you have either with the production team or Bella's former dancers, or even the Lewitsky estate or those who are managing her estate regarding the portrayal of this? Well, um, the person who uh, manages her estate is her daughter, Nora. And I've known Nora for a long time. And, you know, a long time ago, she gave me permission to do a film. I had no conversations with her. 
<laughs> I mean, the only person I had conversations about this was with my editor. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's pretty much it. I I didn't. I mean, I interviewed you know people who had been in her company, um, and people who knew her and asked them questions about that time period. Definitely, you know, and and got their input. But in terms of framing what we were going to do, it was really my editor and myself. It and we had some consulting editors that came in as well. But it was you know we did what I call the biopic version. <laughs> before this version you know it was the version yeah. before this version and I was just like oh, it's so boring we just don't have it's it's like this very flat linear line going on and I you know, I remember saying to my editor I feel like I'm moving blocks around and I don't want to do that and um our uh, co-writer Pat Raducci who said to me why don't you know the best thing you do sometimes is just rip it apart and put it back together again and that's kind of what we did and we definitely wanted to I wanted to show the real Bella and mm -hmm. not this kind of glossy um, romantic view of her right but she was such a strong woman I didn't want to lose that in the film I mean yeah it's and it was hard it was really hard I mean and the dance gallery stuff as well. You know, she was going to build this dance gallery in Los Angeles and that didn't happen. And then the NEA thing happened. And I, I wanted to make sure the real Bella came through. That That's why using her voice was so important to me. You know, so I was like, she needs to be the narrator. We need to hear her voice. Her voice needs to be in our dialogue right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate how the documentary really, how her voice really carries it. And it's not you know, necessarily just the recollections of the talking head interviews, like you really do get a sense of who she was and what she stood for. And even if you could argue the flip side of what her decision was with regards to the NEA grant, you can completely understand why she did that, what the what the basis was for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Ken Talley says that very well in the film. At the end of that section, it's like, you know, it happened because she stuck to her convictions and, Absolutely. you know, that's who she was. The San Francisco Dance Film Festival is excited to host the West Coast premiere, the West Coast theatrical premiere of this film. And we are just so excited to share it with a live audience. And what do you hope audiences take away from watching the documentary? I hope people walk away thinking about what it is that they can do in the present situation that we're in, whatever viewpoint you come from or whoever you are, whatever it is, when people would ask me what I was doing politically, I, I would always say I'm voting and I'm making a film about Bella Lewitsky. Like this is my political act that I'm doing. So I'd like people to walk out thinking what they can do in their own world, in their own way. And it might be voting, it might be making a film, it might be you know, I don't know what, because at the end of the film, we really do talk about, you know, carrying on Bella's legacy. And that's another reason I made this film. And so I would love audiences to do that as well. Well, I know I was very, I felt very inspired and motivated after I saw the film. And I hope our audiences do too. Oh, I, and I'm so excited about the screening. It's a, it's a digital cinema package. So it's, it's going to be really beautiful and it's in a, at a beautiful screening room. Mm -hmm. So I am so excited to see it and hear it. 
with an audience. Oh my God. Well, we can't wait to see you there. And I hope our audience comes um, and strikes up a conversation, (laughs) really. Oh yeah. Oh no, I'm dying to talk to people about it. See, See what they think. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you so much for asking me. This is my first podcast. So thank you so much for asking me. Early bird passes for this year's San Francisco Dance Film Festival are now available. Be the first in line to access our online programs and our exciting live screenings, which will be taking place at theaters across San Francisco. Details can be found in the show notes. Dancing Through the Lens is a production of the San Francisco Dance Film Festival. It is produced and hosted by Chris Willette and Claire Schweitzer. Theme music for Dancing Through the Lens was composed by Daria Novo. You can find the San Francisco Dance Film Festival online at sfdancefilmfest.org and in the social media pages linked in the show notes. <laughs>